You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode number 152 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. When we left off last time, it was the evening of Friday, May 30th, 1862, and the Confederate soldiers of the Valley Army found themselves engaged in a desperate foot race as they tried to reach Strasburg before both Fremont and Shields closed the jaws of the Federal trap on Stonewall Jackson. On Friday evening, both Fremont and Shields were closer to Strasburg than the Valley Army, and there seemed every chance that the Yankees would close the pincers on Jackson. On Friday, John C. Fremont had pushed his men 20 miles in 12 hours, which wasn't bad considering the poor state of much of his command and the heavy rain that had dogged the march. And then James Shields, after capturing Front Royal, seemed ready, willing, and able to carry out his part. He told Irvin McDowell on Friday evening, quote, All now depends on activity. Fremont's force should be pushed forward by direct orders from Washington. If all this be done, the enemy will be captured or cut to pieces. But for all his bluster, Shields failed to follow through with the promised activity. Saturday, May 31st, dawned clear and warm, and nothing stood between Shields and Strasburg except a small force of Turner Ashby's rebel cavalry. But somehow, Shields had come to believe that a division of Confederates, led by James Longstreet, had left Richmond to reinforce Stonewall Jackson, and that Longstreet was already somewhere nearby. And so Shields, suddenly fearful, did nothing all day. To the west, Fremont also came up short on the 31st, despite his promise of the day before that he would be in Strasburg by 5 p.m. When darkness stopped their march on Saturday evening, the soldiers of Fremont's vanguard were still five miles short of their goal. Meanwhile, that Saturday morning, in the Confederate bivouacs around Stevenson's depot, the men had been roused well before daybreak. The ponderous wagon train, however, and the procession of nearly 2,000 prisoners and their guard, the 21st Virginia, slowed the start of the march. The wagon train alone stretched seven miles as it rolled up the valley turnpike. The first of the infantry, Taylor's Louisiana Brigade, didn't enter Winchester until 8 a.m. Throughout the day, an anxious Stonewall Jackson rode with his vanguard and often beyond, alone except for two couriers. Behind him, the Valley Army kept up a grueling pace. 
Fifty minutes of marching filled every hour. Rest periods were never allowed to exceed ten minutes. Rumors flew up and down the column that the Yankees were already in Strasburg and were drawn up, ready for battle. But the rumors proved false, and at the close of day on Saturday, the Valley Army bivouacked for the night just north of Strasburg. Notably absent that night, though, was the Stonewall Brigade, which, with the 1st Maryland, had halted at 10 p.m. just short of Newtown. As you guys will recall, the Stonewall Brigade had kept up the demonstration against Harper's Ferry until the last possible moment, and Stonewall had sent the 1st Maryland off to Martinsburg, and so now these Confederates were hurrying to catch up to the rest of the Valley Army. As the exhausted men finally halted in fields north of Newtown, George Booth of the 1st Maryland said they finally stopped only, quote, when flesh and blood could no longer respond to the relentless demand to push on, end quote. Fellow Marylander Captain John E. Howard agreed, saying, quote, Never was I so tired in my life as I lied down that night in a hard rain to rest my weary limbs and blistered feet. Under no circumstances could any of us possibly have held out, end quote. By the time the Stonewall Brigade and 1st Maryland halted on Saturday night, there were more men strung out along the road to the rear than were left in the ranks. The officers and men had ample cause for exhaustion. Fully aware of the perilous state of affairs and the need for haste, they had marched 35 miles on empty stomachs. The 2nd Virginia had had it even worse. The men of that regiment had marched 42 miles and had gone two days without rations. Despite the obvious hazard of lingering between two enemy forces, Jackson, on Sunday, June 1st, had to hold the road open at Strasburg until the Stonewall Brigade and 1st Maryland arrived. On Sunday morning, just west of the town, the skirmishing between Fremont's vanguard and Confederate pickets began at 7 a.m. The skirmishing grew heavy, and a few artillery pieces added their booming voice to the sound of battle, but Fremont, for all that, never pushed the rebel lines particularly hard. Fremont had talked a good game, but at the crucial moment, he had lacked the stomach for a full-scale fight. On Sunday morning, the thunder of artillery rolling down the Valley Pike seemed a sinister omen to the weary men of the Stonewall Brigade and 1st Maryland. The men somehow mustered up the energy to quicken their pace, and then, when the head of the column reached a point where the Valley Pike offered an unobstructed view of the country as far as Strasburg, one officer later recalled, quote, we could plainly see the smoke of the discharges of the guns we had heard seeming to be almost in our front as the turnpike was then running, and we knew that Jackson was holding back Fremont until we got by. End quote. They then turned their gazes to the east, looking for trouble from Shields, but to everyone's relief, all was quiet in that direction. At noon, the Stonewall Brigade marched into Strasburg. As the men of the brigade and the 1st Maryland passed through the town, their close call in escaping the Federal trap gave rise to a joke that quickly circulated through the ranks. Some tired soldier turned to a comrade and declared that Old Jack was a better leader than Moses. When asked why, the man said that while it took Moses 40 years to lead the Israelites through the wilderness, Jackson would have double-quicked them through in three days. 
I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Fremont had lacked the intestinal fortitude on Sunday to grapple with Stonewall Jackson at Strasburg, and McDowell and Shields had, in the meantime, managed to avoid doing anything decisive the entire day. But after having failed to trap Jackson at Strasburg and allowing him to slip away and head south, Shields had an idea. With McDowell's permission, Shields would take his division down the Luray Road and cut off Stonewall's escape route while Fremont pressed him from behind. McDowell, perhaps sensing they had already missed their best opportunity to bag Jackson, gave his half-hearted consent to Shields' plan. He later testified before Congress that, quote, Shields went off with my consent to Luray as giving the only chance to affect anything. He knew the country, the roads, bridges, etc. better than I did, end quote. The Federals' failure to trap Stonewall at Strasburg was distressing, and Shields' Plan B seemingly fell into the category of, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. But it was not actually so far-fetched, because on June 2nd, the Valley Army seemed to be on the verge of collapse. The physical exertions and mental stress of the past 72 hours was taking its toll on Jackson's force. An Ohio infantryman in Fremont's command said, quote, Confederate stragglers were picked up in the woods by the scores, and the route was lined with clothing, blankets, broken ambulances, muskets, and articles of equipment left behind by the pursued. Heavy straggling among the rebels played havoc with unit integrity. Jackson's aide, Henry Kai Douglas, remembered how, quote, one brigade divided another, and generals and colonels were wandering through the mass in search of their commands. End quote. As the chaos worsened, Stonewall's patience wore thin. His disposition probably wasn't helped by the fact that he had only slept three hours the night before. Douglas noted that Jackson's quote, clouded brow and closed lips were ominous. Henry Kai Douglas witnessed an angry Stonewall dressing down a frustrated brigade commander. Jackson demanded to know why the colonel couldn't get his brigade together, Q, 
keep it together and move on. When the colonel protested that it was impossible to do so, Stonewall responded, Don't say it's impossible. Turn your command over to the next officer. If he can't do it, I'll find someone who can, if I have to take him from the ranks. Before turning in that night, Jackson scribbled a few lines to his wife, telling her, quote, I am retiring before the enemy. They endeavored to get in my rear by moving on both flanks of my gallant army, but our God has been my guide and saved me from their grasp. End quote. Stonewall also wrote to Joseph E. Johnston, explaining his withdrawal back up the valley, but he was unaware that Johnston had been severely wounded two days earlier at the Battle of Fair Oaks, and that Robert E. Lee now commanded the Confederate Army defending Richmond. The heavy rains gave bridges added tactical importance. Jackson correctly surmised Shields' intentions, but Stonewall wasn't unduly worried about the Irishman, since he knew that the same rain that made marching on the Valley Pike uncomfortable would make Shields' march over dirt roads a nightmare. To be on the safe side, though, Jackson sent a detachment of cavalry over to burn two bridges, which would prevent Shields from making an easy junction with Fremont. For good measure, the rebel horsemen also destroyed the bridge at Conrad's store the following day. That was the last span north of Port Republic by which Fremont and Shields might join forces. On June 3rd, Jackson's attention was concentrated on destroying the bridges along the Valley Turnpike as his army continued its retreat. At the same time, Fremont's pursuing Federals attempted to capture the spans before the rebels could destroy them. In this deadly game, Turner Ashby and his cavalry were usually just one step ahead of the Yankees, with Ashby and his men trying to tear up a bridge and set it ablaze, even as the enemy rushed up to try and save the span. That morning, Ashby had received word of his promotion to Brigadier General, but the news didn't stop him from recklessly exposing himself to danger, just as he'd always done. Straggling worsened with every step the weary Valley Army took along the turnpike. That night, Captain James K. Edmonton of the 27th Virginia wrote to his wife that he had never seen the brigade, quote, so completely broken down and unfitted for service. The march was so heavy that I am satisfied the brigade has lost at least a thousand men broken down, left on the way, end quote. James Dinwiddie of the Char Charlottesville Artillery painted a similar picture in a letter to his mother, saying, quote, We have been on a retreat for five days, and an awful time it has been. I never saw so many barefoot men, with their feet all swollen and bleeding. Hundreds and hundreds drag along the road. The Confederates made camp that night between Roots Hill and New Market. Rest came hard, though, as new downpours soaked the Valley Army. The next day, a weather station would record that in the first four days of June, northern Virginia had experienced more than 50% of the rainfall expected for the entire month during a normal year. Artilleryman Lanty Blackford wrote that, quote, Cooking was out of the question, so hunger was added to our other discomforts. We lay unhappily, with puddles of water here and there beneath us, about as miserable as outward surroundings could make us. End quote. A battery mate, Randolph Fairfax, agreed, writing to his sister, quote, 
You have no idea of how completely exhausted our troops are. In addition to our constant marching, our night's rest is so disturbed that we scarcely get more than four or five hours of sleep in every twenty-four. End quote. And Stonewall Jackson was just as exhausted as his men, and his staff worried considerably over the lack of sleep and fatigue to which Jackson had been subjected. While Jackson kept a keen eye on Fremont's pursuit, he hadn't been able to keep a close watch on Shields to the east. Not that Stonewall thought that Shields posed much of a threat. In burning several key bridges, Stonewall had done much to hinder Shields' advance and prevent the Irishmen from linking up with Fremont. But there was still one place where Shields could go to unite with Fremont, and that was the small hamlet of Port Republic, where a surviving bridge crossed the North River, a tributary that flowed into the South Fork of the Shenandoah. Port Republic, therefore, emerged as the key to Stonewall's plan to divide and conquer the Federals. By stationing himself at Port Republic, Jackson would place himself between the oncoming Yankee columns and provide himself with the opportunity to fight either Fremont or Shields alone or fight both in turn. Once he had dealt with the enemy to his satisfaction, it would then be an easy march from Port Republic to nearby Brown's Gap, which would take the Valley Army up and over the Blue Ridge. Once across the mountains, the Virginia Central Railroad would be just a stone's throw away, and trains could take Jackson's command eastward to join the defense of Richmond. His plan made, Jackson directed his army on June 5th to leave the Valley Pike at Harrisonburg and take the road east that would lead them to Port Republic. Fremont reached Harrisonburg the next day, the 6th. In some heavy skirmishing that day on the southeast side of town, Turner Ashby was killed. During the action, Ashby's horse was shot out from underneath him. After freeing himself from his dead mount, Ashby jumped to his feet and attempted to get the Confederate infantry with him to make a charge, but a bullet pierced his side and killed him. A gloom fell over the Valley Army as word spread of Ashby's death with the rear guard. In the universal sorrow over his death, Ashby's merits were emphasized, and his shortcomings in discipline and organization were forgotten. Even Stonewall Jackson, whose relationship with Turner Ashby had been contentious to say the least, grieved his loss, both personally and for the sake of the army. Jackson would write, quote, As a partisan officer, I never knew his superior. His daring was proverbial, his powers of endurance almost incredible, his tone of character heroic, and his insight almost intuitive in divining the purposes and movements of the enemy. End quote. On June 7th, the day after Ashby's death, Fremont ordered Robert H. Milroy to take his brigade on a reconnaissance toward Port Republic. Y'all recall Milroy from the Battle of McDowell. At any rate, here as Milroy neared the small settlement of Cross Keys, located about halfway between Harrisonburg and Port Republic, he ran into not a rear guard, but Confederate troops from Ewell's division. 
The feisty Milroy obeyed Fremont's orders not to bring on a battle and withdrew back toward Harrisonburg, but his reconnaissance provided Fremont with the valuable information that Jackson was no longer retreating, but aimed to fight. While Ewell's division was positioned at Cross Keys, covering the western approach to Port Republic, Stonewall had the rest of his command cover the eastern approach by occupying the high ground overlooking Port Republic and its critical bridge. Significantly, though, only a single infantry company of the 2nd Virginia covered the South River fords with an outer screen of just three companies of the 7th Virginia Cavalry. Jackson's apparent disregard of the threat presented by Shields may have been due to his belief that the Irishmen would be slowed to a crawl by muddy roads. But whatever the reason for his neglect, it was a mistake that would soon bear bitter fruit, as we'll see next time. At any rate, with Yule's men at Cross Keys and the rest of the Valley Army positioned above Port Republic, the weary Confederates enjoyed almost two full days of rest while Fremont and Shields crept into range. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Lee's Lieutenants, A Study in Command by Douglas Southall Freeman. In 1915, Freeman was commissioned to write a one-volume biography of Robert E. Lee. Twenty years later, his four-volume R.E. Lee won the Pulitzer Prize. The three volumes of Lee's Lieutenants, which came out in the 1940s, took him a relatively modest eight years to complete. What we're recommending is actually the excellent, we think, one-volume abridgment that was put together by one of the most noted present-day Civil War historians, Stephen W. Sears. Uh, but hey, if you want to tackle the original three volumes of Lee's Lieutenants in all their glory, well, then more power to you. Now, Freeman's fam famous biography of Robert E. Lee didn't make the cut here on the podcast as an official book recommendation, uh, since, to be honest, it's such blatant hero worship. But Lee's Lieutenants is a bit different as really it's a classic history of the Army of Northern Virginia and an offering of multiple biographies of the officers who fought under Lee. So there you go. You can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. We've had several of you ask us recently if we plan to make the podcast available through Google Play Music. And we're pleased to announce that as of right now, the podcast is available for all of you Android users through Google Play Music. Uh, so please enjoy that. And then we want to thank Douglas H. in North Carolina and Nathan P. in Texas for their donations this past week. Thanks, guys. And thanks to Seth and also to Barbara for joining the ranks of the Strawfoot Brigade this past week. Finally, we have a programming note to share, and it's that Rich has a bit of a surgery coming up this week, so there won't be a new episode next weekend. That means if you're listening in real time, episode number 153 will be out on May 22nd. 
but we will release the next members episode next weekend. So those of you in the Strawfoot Brigade can look for that show um, and you'll have something to tide you over until the next regular episode. Okay, and then as the curtain comes down on this show, we just wanted to remind you that the music you hear at the beginning and end of each and every episode of the podcast is from the song Midnight on the Water, performed by Spiritwood Music, and we are, as always, eternally grateful for permission to use it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. We'll be back in two weeks and look at the battles at Cross Keys and Port Republic as we wrap up the story of Stonewall Jackson's Valley Campaign. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.